Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 30, Old Birmingham 6. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Haunt who we haunt. Seductively consume pills when we seductively consume pills. And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 17, Old Money, which was aired on March 28th, 1991, two weeks after our last episode. And I'm going to be talking about the Birmingham Six. That's the six men who were convicted of planting the Birmingham pub bombs of November the 21st, 1974, before eventually having their convictions quashed on March 14th, 1991, two weeks before Old Money first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And thanks to Timothy Burleson, who got in touch with us on Twitter, because we asked at the end of the last show, had The Simpsons been to LA much? Because the last episode was uh, about Rodney King and Los Angeles and all that kind of stuff. And he's written to us to say The Simpsons did indeed visit LA, or at least Hollywood, in the season 11 premiere Beyond Blunderdome. Excellent. That's the one with Mel Gibson, which should really have rung a bell for me. But. Um... Thanks very much for reminding us of that one. Okay, excellent. Good, good to be reminded of the one with the raging anti-Semite in it. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, also, we had National Podcast Day last week. Oh, we did, yes. And uh, both Tom and I tweeted out some of our favourite podcasts. Uh, and Looks Unfamiliar and Don't Let's Chart were nice enough to tweet back and uh, spread the love. So that's that's all good. Um should also mention, on the subject of Looks Unfamiliar, that I'm in episode 50, which has just been released. Guest hosting the episode, which was an honour, on the golden jubilee of Looks Unfamiliar. Awesome. So, returning to the business at hand, this episode first aired on March 28th, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one at that stage? It's a doozy. It is the one and only by Chesney (laughs) Hawks. Brilliant. This was a genuine surprise to me, as I could have sworn this was late 80s rather than early 90s, but, you know, there we go. I've got the wrong end of the stick. No, it's a bit of decade bleed. Absolutely. There's too much of that. Too much of that. Chesney was born into showbiz in 1971, the son of Len Chip Hawks from the Tremolos, and television actress and host Carol Dilworth. This song, written by Nick Kershaw, and I can well believe that... (laughs) There's something in the chord progression of the vocal cadence that really reminds me of Nick Kershaw in this song. It's originally taken from the film Buddy's Song, released earlier that month, in which Hawks starred alongside The Who's Roger Daltrey and Boone himself, Michael Elphick. The film is a sequel to the BBC TV show Buddy, which also featured Daltrey, and that was based on a series of novels by Nigel Hinton. The song outperformed the film. It's going to be at number one for five weeks after this. So get ready for some more eclectic choices of chart offerings on upcoming episodes. But what happened after? Well, the song was an unlikely US hit as well, as it was featured in the Michael J. Fox film Doc Hollywood later that year. It would peak at number 10 in the Billboard Hot 100 in November 1991. Excellent. Fun fact, 
The director Duncan Jones really seems to like this song, as it's been used in his films Moon as an alarm tone, Source Code as a ringtone, and Mute as the background music in a game. So if you ever wanted an unlikely Chesney Hawks stroke David Bowie link, there we go. <laughs> and another little fact tech for you. One of the two videos made for this song starred Saffron from Republica. Oh. So I'm not sure how much more 90s this could get without donning a global hypercolour t-shirt. <laughs> Good stuff. As for Chesney, well his next single, I'm a man not a boy, not the same one as North and South did a little bit later, got to number 27 in the UK charts, and his mainstream pop career fizzled out from there, leading to a one-hit wonder tag. Hmm. But what a hit. Oh, it's brilliant. And he still seems to be doing all right, but he's still been doing music and acting, seems to have a good sense of his place in popular culture, and he looks happy enough when he's occasionally wheeled out to do the one and only. Yeah. So, fair play to him. Yeah, fair enough. I've got, I've got to say I love that song. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure thing, but <laughs> I'm a bit of a musical snob. I... I for the most part, I don't really like pop music, but if that ever comes on at a work do or something like that, I'm right on the dance floor with that one. Well written, well played, well well performed, well produced. I, I don't see how you could have a problem with that song, essentially. Mm. Um, but there we go. While we're doing things that happened at the time, a mere four days before this episode of The Simpsons, the immortal Hulk Hogan defeated Iraqi sympathiser Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleMania 7, winning the WWF Championship and marking the spiritual end of the Gulf War and the start <laughs> of the healing process for the United States. Which, Very important. Which was rudely interrupted when they wrestled again at SummerSlam that year. The event's actually not all that good, aside from a hilarious blindfold match between Jake the Snake Roberts and the model Rick Martel, and the Ultimate Warrior's best match ever, as he puts his career on the line against the Macho King, Randy Savage. <laughs> Dear. The US viewership for The Simpsons, not WrestleMania, was a Nielsen of 12.4. It was the highest rated show on Fox that week, and 36th in the overall weeklies. The production number is 7F17. Nothing interesting is going to happen with that for the rest of the second season, but I'm sticking with it anyway. And our credited writers today were Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski, as we discussed in episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey. Mm-hmm. The chalkboard gag was I Will Not Grease the Monkey Bars, and the couch gag, somewhat appropriately, sees the family rushing in as usual to find that Abe is asleep on the couch. Mm-hmm. So in this episode, the family are returning from an underwhelming monthly visit with said grandpa, which apparently comprised a trip to the liquor store and they're trying to think of how to spice up their third Sunday of every month, settling on a trip to Discount Lion Safari. So with that time bomb ticking away quietly in the background, Grandpa's pills get mixed up with those of a previously unseen retirement castle resident, one Beatrice Simmons. After seduction over pills... <laughs> Which is one of the... <laughs> one of the most cringeworthy, horrible things I've ever done <laughs> on The Simpsons, I have to say. <laughs> And let me tell you, that phrase meant something very different when I was courting in the 90s. <laughs> Abe discovers that asking someone out never gets any easier, which, again, is very much in keeping with my experience of courting. But ask her out, he does nonetheless. And they enjoy an excellent date that we see, and one assumes some others as well. After which Abe goes to get her a birthday present at the only shop he knows. Herman's Military Antiques. Luckily, Herman directs him to Grandma's World, where he can pick up a shawl. Unfortunately... B's birthday is on the third Sunday of the month, and the family arrive to take him to the Lion Safari. This is perhaps the saddest detail of an episode full of sad details. Mm. When the family arrive, they have no prior knowledge of Abe's burgeoning relationship. 
So we can assume that they haven't spoken for a month. Yes, that's true. They think B is imaginary and drag Grandpa off despite his protestations. And probably leave the main track, get stuck in the mud and attacked by lions and are forced to sleep in the car. And worse, much worse, when Abe does finally get back, he finds that B has died of a broken heart. Mm. Quite literally, in fact, it's a burst ventricle. Mm -hmm. He does find some comfort in not being named as a pallbearer, (laughs) but still disowns Homer. Enter Lionel Hutz, executor of B's will, with a free cigar pen. There to reveal to Abe that B has left him $106,000, which according to a couple of online calculators I ran it through, is the equivalent of roughly $200,000 today. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even better, he doesn't have to spend the night in a haunted house. Abe takes great delight in telling Homer he won't be sharing the money with him, and takes himself off to enjoy the money, firstly by buying Napoleon's fez from Herman, and then going to Disneyland whose sign states quite clearly that it is not affiliated with Disneyland, Walt Disney World, or anything else from the Walt Disney Company. If only we could still say that about The Simpsons, eh? Yeah, oh well. He is haunted by B's ghost, who tells him to give the money away if it's not helping him, and encourages him to reconcile with the family, which he does just slightly too late to save us from Dr. Marvin Munro's awful voice on the anxiety hotline. Abe's plan is simple. He'll invite the whole town to pitch ideas for the use of the cash, and gift it to the most worthy. And none of them are really that worthy. And we get Marvin Monroe again. Yeah, we get double Marvin Monroe. Why? What do we do to merit that? Yeah. But Lisa at least manages to convince Abe that he should focus on the truly needy. A walk through the more run-down areas of Springfield, including, what assumes, Crackton, unfortunately also convinces him that he needs more money. And he goes off to the casino to win it, with Homer in hot pursuit as soon as he's got his drive through Krusty Burger. But when he gets there, Abe is on a winning streak, though Homer does intervene just in time to stop him from losing his accumulated fortune. Abe finally realises that he can do the most good by fixing up the retirement castle, and he does so, welcoming his fellow residents in to the dignity that they deserve. So there we go. It was both funnier and more poignant than I remembered, Mm. but I don't think it's up to the highest heights of this particular season. No, No, I'd agree with you there, but... It's pretty brutal to just have a character who a main character immediately falls in love with and is very, very happy with to just killing her. Yep. She comes back as a ghost, which is a bit disappointing, but uh, uh, yeah. She can't be in the episode more than five minutes, but leaves leaves enough of an impression. That's oh, a, yeah. a very, yeah. um, very good use of time there. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So would you like to hear some character debuts? Mm-hmm. So one character that debuted in this episode was... Abraham Simpson. Sort of. The name Abraham Simpson. It's the first time he's been referred to as it. Oh, really? Yes. So according to the DVD commentary, Matt Groening, who had named Marge, Homer, Lisa and Maggie after his parents and sisters, didn't want to use his grandfather's name for Grandpa Simpson. So he left it to the writers to give him a first name. They chose Abraham, which by pure coincidence is Matt Groening's grandfather's name. No. Well, it came straight from the horse's mouth, so we'll take it at face value, but I agree, it is a strange coincidence. That... Well, of all the names, I, I, I don't believe that for a second, that they accidentally just stumbled upon 
the name of Matt Groening's grandfather. What are the chances of that happening, eh? Well, I did a, did a sprinkling of research around it. I found nothing to, to definitely disprove it. But if, if anybody uh, knows better or worse, mm. for that matter, then uh, you know where to get us. Mm-hmm. Another big debut. Professor Frink, Professor Frink, you'll make <laughs> you laugh, you'll make you think. Yes, Professor John IQ Nerdlebaum Frink Jr. makes his debut here. Throughout the series, he will be voiced, for the most part, by Hank Azaria, although his singing voice has been done by Josh Grogan in the past. Said voice, the speaking, not the singing, uh, is an obvious homage to Jerry Lewis's character Julius Kelp from the film The Nutty Professor. Mm-hmm. Probably don't have to say this, but not the Eddie Murphy one. Yep. To the extent that Lewis himself appeared as Professor Frigg Senior in Season 15, Episode 1, Treehouse of Horror 14. Which is technically non-canon, as it is a Treehouse episode. Yep. But there you get to hear Azaria doing an impression of Lewis, and then Lewis doing an impression of Azaria doing an impression of himself. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, it's, it's quite something. It's quite something. Frink is a nerd! <laughs> and is wheeled out any time a scientist is needed, either to make a valid scientific point, or come up with a crazy invention. He spouts odd phrases and makes strange, garbled, strangled noises at times, which are apparently written in the script simply as frink noises. (laughs) In real life, he's inspired a programming language and lent his name to every meme lord's favourite resource, Frinkiac. Yes. He mentions a wife in this episode and seems to have a son, who appears in Season 3, Episode 24, Brother Can You Spare Two Dimes, and Season 15, Episode 9, I annoyed Grunt Bot. But later episodes will specifically cast him as a loser in love, who eventually builds his own companion android, which bears a great resemblance to Ava from the 2014 film Ex Machina, which, as with all things, was parodied by The Simpsons in season 28, episode 19, The Caper Chase. Good. I think we need to acknowledge Frink's inventions at this stage, and I'm going to ask you if you have any favourites. To give you a bit of thinking time, I'll tell you what mine are. The Frog Exaggerator, as seen when looking for the Loch Ness Monster in Season 10, Episode 21, Monty Can't Buy Me Love. Or the house that grows legs and runs away, but then trips and catches fire, as seen in Season 5, Episode 11, Home of the Vigilante. Oh, I love that one. Oh, the the real humans weren't burned so fast in there. <laughs> Why? Um, no, my favourite thing that he invents is the Matter Transporter. I can't remember which episode it is, but it's for one where Homer goes, mmm, two bucks, and it only transports matter. Mm. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, it was Fly versus Fly. I forget which treehouse that was from. It might have been Treehouse 5. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great episode. And of course, the, the uh, hijinks that the transporter sets up are well worth the price of admission. Yeah, definitely. So our final debut is... Beatrice Simmons, who pretty obviously won't be appearing in any great capacity going forward. Although a photo of her can be seen in Season 4, Episode 14, Brother from the Same Planet. And her tombstone is visible in Season 11, Episode 14, Alone Again, Natura Diddley. B is voiced by Audrey Meadows, who is best known for her role as Alice in The Honeymooners, a show which served as the inspiration for The Flintstones and can therefore be argued as being part of The Simpsons' DNA. Mm Mm-hmm. She was also a banker and advisory director of Continental Airlines, so a very, very career there. Al Jean said that Meadows was perfect for the role because she was very sweet 
and that the staff had a lot of fun during the recording sessions with her. She died aged 73 on February the 3rd, 1996. Oh. Did you know? I've got a fair few this time, actually. Oh, okay. I've, I've had a, a very uh, poor run for did you knows, <laughs> but there's a, there's a few here. So we'll start with more of a did you notice. The line for Grandpa's money includes, but is not limited to, the following people. Jacques. Dr. Hibbert. Arpu. Edna. Mr. Largo. Krusty. Nelson. Master Chef from the Sushi Restaurant. Princess Kashmir. Mediocre slugger Bill McCluskey. <laughs> Sideshow Mel. Darth Vader. Reverend and Mrs. Lovejoy. The Joker. A Vulcan. Ned and Maud Flanders. Principal Skinner. Ken Brockman. And Barney. And we can also see Bleeding Gums Murphy outside... And Otto, Burns, Smithers, Moe, Marvin Monroe, Bart, Lisa, and Professor Frink actually pitch their ideas. So that is basically every non-main family character plus Bart and Lisa mm. that we've seen. Bob from the RV Roundup wasn't there. That's, that's the only one that springs to mind at this okay. stage. And the babysitter bandit, but I assume she's behind bars. Yeah. And Sideshow Bob, for that matter. Yeah, true, reason. true. So there we go. I can, I can literally think of three characters that weren't in that whole sequence. Uh, also worth giving mention to the departments in Grandma's World. Tom, oh. can you remember any of those? I can't remember any. I, di- I, I didn't see any. I know that he calls for a price check-in activewear. Absolutely. But, yeah. no, but no, I didn't see any. We have hard candies, doilies, <laughs> picture frames, cookies, buy one, get one free. Not sure if they're macadamia nut or not, though. <laughs> Uh, seashell soap, sachets, and potpourri. Nice. You may have noticed, in fact, I know you noticed because you pointed it out to me, that the credits at the end actually list what voices each actor performed. Yeah. Which is... isn't normal. No. Apparently, they'd had a lot of letters asking who did what voice, so this was in response to that. I don't think it's ever happened again, but I could be very wrong about that. Well, and it's, and it's a bit of a blink and you miss it as well. Definitely uh, one for VCR users. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Ralph Mellish, yet to be rechristened Hans Moleman, is one of B's pallbearers and can also be seen in a reclining chair at the end. Mm-hmm. Discount Lion Safari is based on Lion County Safari in Palm Beach County, Florida, an attraction that Jay Kogan used to visit as a child. Okay. The band, yeah, sorry, like I said, I got a fair few. The <laughs> band, the Abe and B, I've just noticed their anagrams of each other. Oh, there we go. Abe and B. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, the band that they dance to are the Larry Davis Dance Kings. Oh, well, Larry Davis makes several appearances, doesn't he? With with his experience. Yeah, I think we last saw them in Season 1, Episode 13, Some Enchanted Evening, but we will be seeing them again, and repeatedly. The first song that Otto is singing, and that's a generous term, on the bus to the casino, is the awesome Frankenstein by Edgar Winter. How on earth did you know that? I just know Frankenstein by Edgar Winter. He was there going... Oh, see, now you hum it, I know what it is, but how on earth can you work it out from what Otto's doing? He's just going... Fair enough. It's it's years of singing instrumentals. Um, I'm a seasoned pro. Um, And finally, there is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it reference to the Springfield mystery spot. Mm -hmm. Lisa describes it as just a puddle of mud, but we'll later see it in Season 3, Episode 17, Homer at the Bat. And presumably Ozzy Smith is still tumbling through it, 
taking occasional photographs to this very day. Nice. So that's all I've got. Tom, Birmingham 6. Right, okay, Birmingham 6. I still really need a break to go from Simpsons to Birmingham 6 because this is going to be a completely different tone. Okay, so... And I'm once again returning to the troubles of Northern Ireland. So I've already talked about the history of Ireland in episode 17, two cars in every garage and three eyes on President Mary Robinson. Sorry, two two cars in every car hole and three eyes on President Mary Robinson. Thank you. Yeah, we established that earlier. And I've gone over the troubles in episode 28, Oh Brother, Where Art the Provisional IRA? But this week I want to talk about a specific incident, and that's the Birmingham pub bombings of 1974. So first, a bit of background. In 1969, the provisional IRA, nicknamed the Provos, emerged following a split within the official IRA. The Provos quickly earned a reputation for being proactive, not afraid to use violence to further their cause. They targeted the British Army and members of the RUC, and as the conflict escalated in the early 70s, they started targeting businesses with car bombs. The epitome of this was Bloody Friday, a day in July 1972 where the provost detonated 22 car bombs in the centre of Belfast, killing nine people. And after that, they started targeting the British mainland. As well as the bombings, the provost carried out assassinations. The politician Ross McWhirter was shot dead at his home, and after a failed machine gun attack on a restaurant in Mayfair, IRA members barricaded themselves in a flat on Balcombe Street in what was known as the Balcombe Street Siege. As well as army targets, they also targeted pubs. A pub in Woolwich was bombed, as was Guildford. And the Guildford pub bomb killed five people, of which four were soldiers. Then on November 21st, 1974, came the focus of our story, the Birmingham pub bombs. Birmingham had already been a target of the IRA, uh, including the famous Rotunda building in the centre of Birmingham. So at ten past eight that evening... The Birmingham Post received a phone call from an anonymous man with an Irish accent saying there is a bomb planted in the rotunda and there is a bomb in New Street at the tax office. This is double X. And the double X was very important because it was a known IRA code word. So the way it worked was the IRA would make their code words known to the police so the police would know that it was a genuine call. So otherwise, you know, anyone could could phone up the police or the press or whoever, uh, just for a laugh. People at the Birmingham Post immediately got in touch with the police, who went to the rotunda. Just six minutes after the warning, a bomb went off in the Mulberry Bush pub, a pub that occupied the bottom two floors of the rotunda. The pub was not warned of the bomb, and it was full of people enjoying a Thursday night out. The bomb blew a metre-wide crater in the concrete floor and part of the ceiling collapsed. The explosion sent glass and debris into the street, causing further injuries. Ten people died in the explosion, including two people who were just walking past. And many people had severe injuries, including lost limbs. Ten minutes later, there was another explosion, this time at a pub called The Tavern in the Town, which was a short distance from the rotunda and directly beneath the tax office. Nine people were killed immediately in the blast, with two people later dying in hospital. Following the second blast, the police acted to evacuate everyone out of all pubs in the city centre. A nearby hotel was used as an emergency first aid post, and taxis were used to ferry the injured to hospital. Later that evening, the police found a third bomb, but this one was a bit different. 
It was found in the doorway of a branch of Barclays Bank on Hagley Road, about two miles from the city centre. So remember, the first two bombs were just streets apart from each other. It was wrapped in a plastic bag and consisted of six kilos of explosives linked to a timer. The policeman who found it was one of the luckiest people alive, as while investigating it, he poked it with his truncheon. This caused the detonator to activate, but the bomb did not go off. Oh, Mm. charmed life. Absolutely. Well, we'll see in a little bit. So the bomb was disposed of in a controlled explosion the next morning. And understandably, the public were outraged and demanded the police swiftly bring those responsible to justice. The Home Secretary at the time, Roy Jenkins, passed the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which allowed suspects to be detained for up to seven days if the police believed they were preparing an act of terrorism on the British mainland. There was even a debate in Parliament on bringing back capital punishment for terrorism offences, but fortunately it didn't pass. Straight after the bombings, the police began the hunt for suspects. Shortly before the explosions, five men, Patrick Joseph Hill, Gerard Hunter, Richard McIlkenny, William Power and John Walker, had set off by train from Birmingham New Street Station, just yards from the Rotunda, to Haitian, a small village with a ferry port, which offered ferries to Ireland. They were on their way to the funeral of James McDade, an IRA member who had accidentally killed himself while trying to set up a bomb at a telephone exchange in Coventry. While they were getting tickets, the person at the ticket office noticed their Irish accents and informed the police. The five men were picked up by a special branch in Haitian, and they were asked to go to a police station in nearby Morecambe to eliminate themselves from the inquiries. The next day, forensic tests were carried out, and they were arrested, along with the sixth man, Hugh Callaghan. They were handed over to the custody of the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad, and from then on things got very bad for them very quickly. Straight after being arrested, they were sleep-deprived, food-deprived, subject to beatings, mock executions, and threatened with dogs. Four of the men signed documents where they confessed to the bombings. Patrick Hill and Gerard Hunter did not sign anything. Their trial was held at Lancaster Crown Court rather than Birmingham, and it began on June 9th, 1975. Mr Justice Bridge was the presiding judge. The prosecution relied on two key pieces of evidence, the confessions and the forensic results. After legal arguments were presented, the judge deemed that the confessions were admissible as evidence in court, despite the confessions containing a glaring inaccuracy. They confessed to leaving the bombs in plastic bags, just as the unexploded third bomb was. However, the forensic tests carried out at the crime scene showed that the bombs were left in leather bags. And then there was the forensic evidence. Grease tests were conducted on Power and Hill, and the results were positive. So here's why... They tested positive for grease. Ah. (laughs) Well, here's where my degree in biochemistry comes into play. So the grease test... Well, it's a German name, so maybe Grace. Ah. So it's a test used to detect nitrate ions. A sample is mixed with a grease reagent, and if nitrate ions are present, they will react with it to give an azo dye, which is bright pink, so therefore easily observed by the human eye. When testing for the explosive nitroglycerin, the sample is first treated with caustic soda to break down the compound into nitrate ions. So the logic employed in forensics is fairly straightforward. Nitroglycerin can be broken down to nitrate ions with caustic soda, so if a sample yields a positive grease test after being treated with caustic soda, then the person the sample came from must have been handling nitroglycerin, and therefore must have been handling explosives. Okay. 
So this was certainly the opinion of Dr. Frank Scuser. He was providing evidence for the prosecution, and he was 99% positive that this was the only explanation for the positive tests. However, far more reliable gas chromatography tests, the kind that Professor Frink uses to try and elucidate the secret ingredient in flaming Mose, yeah. proved negative for both Hill and Power. The evidence was refuted by Dr. Hugh Kenneth Black, the former Chief Inspector of Explosives for the government, who pointed out the possibility of false positives from the grease test. Nitrate can come from nitrocellulose, a very common material at the time that was used to coat playing cards. And what had Paddy Hill been doing on the train to Haitian? Playing cards. So despite all this, the judge preferred Scuse's evidence to Black's. In his summing up before the jury retired to consider their verdicts, the judge said this, I am of the opinion not shared by all my brothers on the bench, but if the judge has formed a clear view, it is much better to let the jury see that and say so, and not pretend to be a kind of Olympian detached observer. Which... Is that not what judges are meant to be? Well, yes, as far as I'm concerned. The judge... As far as I'm concerned, in law, the judge should only be pointing out clear legal issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I did jury service uh, once, and there was like an irregularity in the case, an irregularity with the evidence. And the judge told us, as the jury, right, well, you've got to uh, acquit this person because of what's going on. So if that happens, then that's fine. But if you've got a fair trial, then yeah, the judge is not supposed to go, well, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> that's what this entire system is set up to avoid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. Uh, anyway, sorry, do, yeah. do carry on. So this judge went on to argue, if the confessions had been forced out of the men, then a conspiracy would have to exist that was large enough to encompass both the Lancashire and West Midlands police. On top of that, if Dr. Scuse was wrong, he would have wasted most of his professional life. Now, I love that because in scepticism, you have this argument by conspiracy. For example, if the moon landings were faked, then you would have to have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all on it. And this judge is saying, right, well, if the confessions were beaten out of them, then pretty much everyone in the Lancashire police and everyone in the West Midlands police would have have to have been all right with suspects being beaten until they confessed. It doesn't necessarily follow that, though. It doesn't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. Yeah. Because it would only have taken a limited number of people to cover it up for the entire rest of the force to yeah. be none the wiser that it was a, a coerced confession. Yeah. And also, the idea that that sort of thing went on was not exactly a secret. Certainly, as we'll discover later, anyway. So, the jury returned verdicts of guilty, and each of the men was given 21 life sentences on August 15th, 1975. The following year saw their first appeal, which was dismissed by the Court of Appeal. It looked as if they would languish in prison all their lives, but in 1985, journalist Chris Mullen from ITV's World in Action took up the case, producing a series of episodes which detailed the claims that the men were innocent. He even claimed to have met the real perpetrators. In January 1988, the then Home Secretary Douglas Hurd referred the case back to the Court of Appeal following public pressure. The appeal lasted six weeks, making it at the time the longest appeal in British legal history. Despite the evidence to hold up their conviction still being exceedingly flimsy, the appeal failed, 
and the appeal judge ruled that their convictions were safe and satisfactory. And that ruling, to be honest, made a mockery of British justice. Now, following more public pressure, and I remember we had a Free the Birmingham Six poster on our front door at the time, another appeal was granted in 1991. This time, all but one of the six were represented by Michael Mansfield QC, a bit of a legal legend who has represented, amongst others, the family of Stephen Lawrence, the Guildford Four, the McLibel Two, and the families of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster. This time, the scientific evidence of Dr Frank Skuser, who had been retired by the civil service in 1985 for limited effectiveness, was properly called into question. They also brought forward evidence of police fabrication and evidence suppression. On March 14th, 1991, just two weeks before Old Money was first aired, the convictions were finally ruled unsafe and therefore quashed. The six men walked free. After being released, an indignant Paddy Hill had this to say while pointing at the court. For 16 and a half years, we have been used as political scapegoats for people in there to hide. The police told us from the start that they knew we hadn't done it. They told us we didn't care who done it. They told us that we were selected and that they were going to frame us just to keep the people in there happy. That's what it's all about. Justice? I don't think those people in there have the ability to spell the word, let alone dispense it. They are rotten. Okay, so a a tad miffed. Oh, yeah, and quite rightly so. So although they were free, that wasn't the end of their ordeal. Having been in prison for 16 and a half years, their lives and the lives of their loved ones were irreversibly affected. In a 2011 interview, Paddy Hill revealed how he doesn't sleep as he keeps having nightmares about shooting policemen. He also has no feelings for his children, having been separated from them for so long. A year after being released, the Birmingham Six were each awarded compensation between £800,000 and £1.2 million. With his money, Paddy Hill set up the Miscarriages of Justice organisation, otherwise known as Mojo, to help others who have been victims of miscarriages of justice. The false convictions also had terrible consequences for the people of Birmingham. An inquest into the bombings was set up in 1974, but adjourned after the Birmingham Six were convicted. After all, what's the point of an inquest when you know who done it? Even after their convictions were quashed, the inquest did not resume. In fact, it took a protracted campaign by the victims' families to get the inquest reopened, and it didn't happen until 2016. Ugh. So it's ridiculous. You know, you have the families of victims waiting 25 years for answers. And even then, the government refused legal aid, so the families had to pay for the lawyers themselves. The inquest concluded that the 21 victims of the bombings were unlawfully killed by the IRA. The jury reached the conclusion that not enough of a warning was given for the police to act to prevent the deaths, but the police came in for criticism for not doing enough to gather evidence afterwards. For example, all 999 calls that evening were wiped, The first officer on the scene wasn't interviewed by his own police force. A pristine gun was found near the scene, but subsequently lost, and no elements of the third bomb were preserved. The inquiry also concluded how the bombings were carried out. In each case, a man went into the pubs, left a sports bag containing the bomb in the pub, and then left. Simple as that. But the inquiry did shed some light over who might have been behind the attacks. A convicted IRA bomber, known anonymously as Witness O, identified four IRA men as being behind the bombing. Three of them were already dead, but a fourth, Michael Hayes, was very much alive. In 2017, Hayes went on record to say that he was an active member of the IRA that night, 
but he refused to confirm his exact role, just repeating his initial statement when asked if he planted the bombs. He apologised for the IRA's actions that night, an apology that rang hollow with the relatives of the victims. However, he did offer up some new information about the third bomb. He said that when he saw the devastation that the first two bombs caused, he personally defused the third one, hence it didn't go off when the policeman poked it with his truncheon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was actually deliberate. Well, yeah, it didn't go off because, according to his record anyway, because he defused it. Okay, so it might not have been the lucky break that it sounded then. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it wasn't going to go off. Well, if Michael Hayes is telling the truth, then yeah, it didn't go off. It's also something very weird about the location, because it was like two miles away from the others and outside the front door of the bank. And the other two were left inside pubs, you know, which is very, very different. So although he didn't say anything about it, I've got a suspicion that that bomb was also moved as well. Yeah, I wonder whether they got cold feet about the third bombing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because it just doesn't make any, any sense otherwise. Well, I don't want to play amateur sleuth here or anything, but that's where the it's where the evidence is leading me. Yeah, to. yeah, that's where it's leading me. Well, quite a lot of it doesn't make sense, but we'll we'll get onto that. So, to this day, Michael Hayes is the only person to have claimed any sort of responsibility for the bombings. He's unlikely to be charged for a few reasons. Witness O stated that he believed it's because of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Hayes is also seventy and lives in Dublin. And he chose his words carefully so as not to incriminate himself in any specific act. So, you know, he was just an active IRA member at the time. That could mean anything. Yeah. Anyway, so as for the people responsible for the imprisonment and terrible treatment of the Birmingham Six, none of them have been brought to justice. In June 1975, 14 prison officers went on trial for assault on the six men, but they were all acquitted. A civilian suit was launched against the West Midlands Police in 1977, but the case was struck out by the Court of Appeal in 1980. So on the whole, what strikes me about this case is the total lack of justice. So no one's been properly charged with setting the bombs, no one's been convicted of beating the Birmingham Six, and in the words of Jay Sherman, it stinks. And, I mean, you'd like to think that the British police learnt the lessons from the case of the Birmingham Six, but... We know that stuff like that still carries on, because eight years after the Birmingham Six were released, the much-loved TV presenter Jill Dando was killed. So her attacker grabbed her from behind, forced her onto the steps of her front entrance, and shot her once through the head, killing her instantly. The attacker then got clean away. And in my subjective opinion, they had no chance of catching the real attacker. So they picked up a guy called Barry George, who, to use a colloquial phrase, was the local nutter. Yes, now he was the one who went by the nom de plume Barry Bolzara yeah. and therefore claimed he was the cousin of Freddie Mercury. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he liked to pose um, with guns and have photographs of him taken. But the only physical piece of evidence they had was a single particle of gun residue on his clothing with you know, cross-contamination yeah. be, be, being, a, being a possibility. And since he was a known poser with guns, it yeah. wouldn't exactly have been beyond the bounds of possibility for that to have crept on in a different way. Yeah. And also, if he'd fired a gun and then put it in his pocket, wouldn't you expect there to be just a little bit more than a single particle of gun residue? So, yeah. Um, he was convicted of the murder, spent six years in prison for it before his conviction was quashed, and he was released following an appeal. 
And to me, there are so many parallels between the Birmingham Six and Barry George. Mm. So you had you had the police under pressure to get a result, and they had no chance of catching with people who really did it, so they just caught people that they could blame. Have they no maverick cops that play by their own rules? No, Because they get not. results. Yeah. We've yeah. seen it time and again. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I want to finish on, are you familiar with the TV show Monkey Dust? Yes. Good, good. Now, it was originally aired in 2003, and it was a very dark animated sketch show, but one of the more memorable characters is Ivan Dobsky who in each of his storylines is released from prison following him being wrongly convicted of the meat-safe murders in the 1970s. He has a Carlisle accent and is voiced by Simon Greenall, more memorable for his portrayal of Michael the Geordie in Alan Partridge, and more recently the Meerkats and the car insurance adverts. And his catchphrase, I never done it, echoes the words of Paddy Hill when he had his convictions quashed. Ah. So, yeah, it is... It is such a messy business. And there's one thing that really strikes me, that you are supposed to be able to trust British justice. So if the police pick someone up, they go to court, they get tried, you are meant to think, right, they've got the man, they've done a good job, that's the person that did it. I can't think like that. No. With with cases like the Birmingham Six, like the Guildford Four as well. Didn't even mention the Guildford Four, but... They had an almost identical experience. Picked up after a bomb went off, had confessions forced out of them, and spent a huge amount of time in prison for a crime they didn't commit. There is too much uncertainty, especially around certain high-profile cases that are not cut and dried. Mm. The police will be under pressure to get results. And I, I think that we've seen we've seen proof more than once that there comes a point where the line is crossed. Mm. And there's very little comeback for the people that do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, I say that as somebody who worked in the Ministry of Justice for a number of years, which sounds incredibly Orwellian, (laughs) um, but I was just like a clerk at the magistrate's court. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I saw nothing but hard-working people. I mean, we were only cogs in the machine sort of thing, but, you know, all of us working under good faith towards the, the... expedient processing of court users mm-hmm. um, but some some of the things you would hear and I won't repeat them here for obvious reasons it, it leads me to believe that uh, yeah it's um, you've, you've got to keep your nose very very clean and, and just try and minimise any possibility of coming into contact yeah yeah it, 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 especially in the cases of Barry George and the Birmingham Six the way the circumstantial evidence counted against them. So the Birmingham Six were on their way to a funeral of someone who was an IRA man. But in terms of being guilty of any crimes themselves, so what? Doesn't matter. Barry George, he was in the vicinity at the time, but he lived round the corner. So of course he was. With Barry George, they never found a murder weapon. They never established a motive. Uh, he had He had learning difficulties. So the idea that he could do what the killer of Jill Dando did and then just sort of go around the corner and hang around. It's just it's just absurd. So yeah, that is that is a very brief snippet of the last fifty odd years of British justice. And if it doesn't shake your faith in the British justice system, then nothing will. Scottish system, on the other hand, absolutely fine. <laughs> no problems with that lately. Not bad, not bad. 
<laughs> so I think before we incriminate ourselves further, we should probably um, draw things to a close there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so don't forget, you can find us uh, at Her Majesty's Leisure, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Um, don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org, on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. You can email us at podcast@retrospectus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we've been doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.